Hello, and welcome to Clinical Nutrition Notes, a podcast where we speak with guest experts and opinion leaders about the art and science of clinical nutrition, brought to you by Nestle Health Science Canada. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals for education purposes. I'm your host, Bethany Hopkins, Medical Affairs Manager with Nestle Health Science. Today, we'll be talking with Stuart Phillips about current concepts in protein for the older critically ill patient. Dr. Phillips is a PhD professor in kinesiology and adjunct professor in the School of Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. In addition, he's a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Skeletal Muscle Health and Director of the Physical Activity Centre of Excellence and the McMaster Centre for Nutrition, Exercise and Health Research. Dr. Phillips' research is focused on the impact of nutrition and exercise on human skeletal muscle protein turnover. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Phillips. You published two review papers in 2017, one in Frontiers in Nutrition titled Current Concepts and Unresolved Questions in Dietary Protein Requirements and Supplements in Adults, the second in Nutrition and Clinical Practice titled Protein Turnover and Metabolism in the Elderly Intensive Care Unit Patient. I'd like to explore several concepts from these papers in the podcast. First, to set the stage, can you briefly describe body protein balance and how this changes in the older adult? Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Um, I think the concept of protein balance and the way I describe it is probably best understood within the concept of trying to understand how a wall that bricks are being put into and bricks are simultaneously being taken out of would change in size. So. If you imagine that the patient's wall is their body protein, bricks or amino acids are being put into the wall in one process. In the case of muscle, we call that muscle protein synthesis. And clearly the substrates would be all of the essential amino acids, but in particular the amino acid leucine. And at the other end of the wall, bricks are being taken out. And it's really a competition between those two processes to which one wins that would determine the size protein containing wall the one that we're most interested in, skeletal muscle. So I think that that's the analogy that probably most best fits the situation. And in the older ICU patient, or an older person prior to coming into the ICU, they're actually fighting a little bit of a losing battle because the wall is shrinking in size. In the case of an older person, they would be undergoing the process of sarcopenia. And so the rate at which bricks are being taken out of the wall is exceeding the rate which bricks are being put in into the wall. I, I love that analogy, and actually, I haven't heard anyone describe it quite like that before. So, um, so thanks. It's it it you know really means a lot, and I think helps describe that process really well for people. When you're talking about the older ICU patient, we you know we we see um, and and people talk about you know seniors and the older adult, and what what age group are you really referring to here by the older adult? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, it, it's one that I'm uh, probably cognizant that chronological age is the usual demarcation, but we actually believe that uh, a person's, if you like, metabolic age prior to being admitted to the ICU might be important. So somebody that is 60 years old and has a number of comorbidities, like for example, diabetes or hypertension or heart disease, might be metabolically speaking a lot older than somebody who is 60 and in quite good shape. But nonetheless, we use 60 or 65 as the usual demarcation to say that this person 
is definitely older and experiencing some kind of reduction, at least in their muscle mass, probably prior to being admitted to the ICU. And when you think about, you know, that age range and you think about the, I guess, the the typical ICU, medical surgical ICU patient, you know, most often a majority of those patients, maybe two thirds are over the age of 60 and many of them do have multiple comorbidities. So this is really a a demographic that, you know, clinicians across the country are, are working with, you know, day in and day out. So with that older adult and, and, you know, the challenges they have, you said, in terms of sort of building that wall, um, what happens when you layer then critical illness, you know, on top of this? It's been reported in the older critically ill patient that they do represent a greater challenge. And you've used the term uh, perfect storm to describe the loss of lean mass in these older ICU patients. And can you just explain for a minute, what do you mean by this perfect storm? Yeah, sure. I, I think that what you have to appreciate is that um, somebody who's 60 is probably, no matter whether they're metabolically healthy or not, that they're experiencing a loss of muscle mass prior to entering the ICU. That's the normal uh, age-related loss of muscle due to sarcopenia. And then when you layer on top the disuse that is associated with the ICU, so uh, most of these patients are on uh, bed rest for a period of time, and you consider all the factors that are going on in the ICU in case of um, undernutrition, what we call an anabolic resistance. In other words, an older person is unable to mount a robust protein synthetic response. We've got pro-catabolic cytokines. We've got pro-catabolic hormones, cortisol, for example. And these things all come together to form a confluence of factors that would really predispose that older ICU patient to losing um, not just body protein mass, but in particular muscle mass. So thinking about the, you know, the challenges and that sort of confluence that you're talking about that this older critically ill patient may experience, in order to mitigate or, or lessen muscle loss or lean loss, you suggested that there needs to be an aggressive and an early intervention. And what kind of early interventions are, are you referring to here, Dr. Phillips? Well, I think the most important one would be to consider... Uh how soon and how early you can get nutrition on board. So uh, for for a lot of ICU patients, until there's a a feeding tube in place, for example, uh, these patients might remain uh, NPO, which would be a, you know, a serious situation where you're, again, because of what we call an iatrogenic undernutrition, or if you like an ICU malnourishment, would result in an inability of um, amino acids to get on board and, and, and would actually aid in some of the really rapid muscle loss that we see. So the, the biggest thing is to get amino acids and protein on board um, as soon as possible uh, via the enteral route, or if not, via the parenteral route uh, as possible. I, it's not always that easy, I understand that, but the earlier that those amino acids can be put into circulation and available to support the synthetic side of the the wall building, if you like, um, the better. Yeah, and I think that's that's a that's a challenge sometimes for clinicians in terms of not having this crystal ball and knowing, you know, how long is this person going to be NPO and unable to, you know, consume nutrition orally. So getting 
on with, you know, nutrition support, whether it be enteral or parental nutrition, may be something that, you know, needs to be considered sooner and then can be adjusted depending on what happens with the course of that individual. So when, when we're thinking about the protein that's being delivered to ICU patients, a lot of times the the dosing is is what first comes to mind for individuals is how much protein does my does my patient require and when you're talking about muscle protein synthesis and anabolic resistance what protein dosing appears to be necessary to really have an impact on protein synthesis in in the older patient yeah that that's a great question and, and i really i i think it's important for for me to emphasize here that uh, as part of the the paper uh, that I published um, in association with the um, nutrition in in clinical practice, there was a consensus paper uh, that was published in association with that that invited not just myself, but a number of other uh, panelists to comment on this. And the general consensus, and not so not just my own recommendation, was that we should be aiming for uh, at least 1.2 grams of protein per kilo per day and uh, upwards maybe in the older uh, ICU patient to 1.5 or 1.6 or or even greater in some situations, maybe as high as two grams per kilo per day. So it's um, it, it's definitely not a hard and fast number, but the I think the general consensus was we we need to come to at least sort of 1.2, uh, better if it's 1.5, 1.6, and it may need to be in the older patient as high as as, as two grams per kilo per day. And I guess depending on you know, the degree of catabolism and, and what else is happening, the older ICU patient, you know, would be a little bit managed differently perhaps than, you know, the older individual living in the community or with, with chronic illness. Yeah, I, I think that the important distinction is if, if someone is in the community versus someone is in the ICU is the ability to be uh, physically active and mobile. Um, and in addition to obviously provision of protein, being physically active or able to um, bear some type of load with your muscles and do some form of physical activity, even if it's just going for a walk, uh, would be beneficial. I mean, that's that's part of the the second half of the equation in ICU patients is to you know as soon as as they are able is to try and get them mobile. That could include uh, mobility as little as uh, sitting at the bedside or even standing. For a period of time, but but certainly trying to get patients to be um, mobile earlier rather than having a prolonged period of bed rest. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more people are beginning to to realize that this combination of of activity, whatever that activity may be, and providing you know uh, exogenous protein seems to be really important. That combination when you're talking about protein dosing um, and, you know, why that's important. Another area that you address in your publications is the quality of protein and that that can also have an impact on clinically relevant outcomes. Yet that particular aspect of protein nutrition may often be underappreciated. And I'm wondering if you can talk for a minute about what do you mean by protein quality and the impact that this may have for the older patient? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, protein quality is really something that's been, um, I don't know about unappreciated, but maybe underappreciated. One of the things that's becoming clear uh, with research that we've done and a number of other labs as well 
is that the essential amino acids, so it's the nine of the, the, the 20 amino acids that we need to have, um, it unto themselves have sort of subclasses and subcategories that are important to have. And so a protein, if you're going to feed it, uh, needs to obviously have the full complement of essential amino acids and be easily digestible. And that's traditionally how we've refer to protein quality, so good digestibility, good essential amino acids. But what's emerging now is that the content of uh, a single amino acid, one of the branch chains, it, leucine, um, is particularly important. And if you like, it's a substrate, so it's a brick for building new muscle protein, but it's also the brick that sort of gets the process going. In other words, when leucine gets delivered, it's a big trigger signal to initiate the process of protein synthesis. And so quality of proteins is important to consider with respect to all of the essential amino acids, but in particular, the, the quantity of leucine um, that is in a protein would be, I think, really, really critical to consider. And when we're talking about um, proteins and, and looking at the, uh, those essential amino acids and in particular leucine, which which proteins uh, are you are you referring to here, Dr. Phillips, that would be rich in leucine content? Yeah, the, the proteins that top the list in terms of leucine content are dairy-based proteins, and and whey in particular uh, is a very rapidly digested high leucine containing fraction of uh, it's about 20% usually uh, of milk protein. And it's really the one that is sort of, if you like, the gold standard and, and, and highest leucine containing, if you like, positive protein control that we have. So, you know, formulations that are based in whey protein or milk protein in particular would probably be uh, particularly important. Um, not that other protein sources, you know, aren't good, but if you wanted to rank them, then it would be whey protein right at the top and then onward, on downwards from there. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. One other thing, just getting into the last couple of questions, that you know, a question that often comes up um, or a concern for clinicians when we're talking protein is you know protein and, and renal function. So the kidney, of course, is an organ intimately involved in protein metabolism, and there is a, a concern that higher protein intakes could have adverse effects on a patient's renal function. What does the research tell us about higher protein intakes and kidney function in general and or in the in the ICU setting? Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, it, it, you know, I, I think it's important to draw a sort of sharp distinction between people who have pre-existing renal conditions and people who are in the ICU without any indication for renal dysfunction. And the important point probably to make is that you, you know, these people need to survive the ICU. And we know that early provision and greater levels of protein uh, help older patients. And so I think that that's the lens through which I uh, view this question and uh, place my answer in context. So if somebody is known to have some pre-existing renal condition and they don't have a good renal function, then it probably isn't a good idea to load up on protein. But at the same time, um, observational studies suggest that protein intakes at least greater than 1.2 during critical illness improve ICU survival compared with lower protein intakes. And if you look at the combined then potential to achieve a positive 
full body balance of protein with much higher intakes in older patients, then uh, I'm going to borrow a line from uh, Dr. Rolly Dickerson, who's one of the sort of preeminent physicians in this area, where he says the limitation of protein intake on a short-term basis doesn't appear to be warranted in a patient without overt kidney failure or a contraindication for hemodialysis. And really the point is, is that the negative impact of withholding or giving lower protein um, would be greater than considering what impact that would have on a patient's kidney function unless the clinician has, you know, full-blown knowledge that that is compromised to some degree. Yeah, you bring up a good point, and and I know... um... Raleigh Dickerson has been, you know, cited uh, in that area a couple of times in in publications. And the whole concept of, you know, contraindication dialysis, I think, is important for clinicians to consider as well, because many, many patients in the IC would also be being dialyzed. One last uh, item I'd like to talk before we close is about the role of protein affecting outcomes beyond mortality. So mortality is obviously an important outcome. But other outcomes, such as quality of life and functional status, are beginning to be recognized as, as things that we, we need to understand a little bit more. They're outcomes that really matter to, to patients and families. And there's you know, emerging evidence about the importance of continued vigilance in ensuring proper nutrition and exercise after people leave the ICU. And can you comment for a minute on that, Dr. Phillips? Yeah, I think what's particularly important for people to realize is the rate of survival um, in in ICU patients now is at an all-time high. It shows that the data are trending that the rate of survival are going to go up. That combined with the fact that, as you mentioned, about two-thirds of ICU patients are probably over the age of 60 or 65, uh, you've really got a confluence of two things coming together where you've, you've got a high survivability rate, you've got a majority of older patients, and you're really talking about improving the quality of lives of these patients afterwards. And, and the biggest condition that I think people need to be aware of is an ICU-acquired muscle weakness. And this is, a, if you like, a downstream corollary or consequence of the loss of lean mass and the loss of physical conditioning that is associated with prolonged periods of bed rest and time spent in the ICU. So the longer that bed rest and the longer that ICU stay, then clinicians really need to be aware of what it would take for this person to return home, return back to work, and return back to a good quality of life, able to perform activities of daily living. So the support for if you like rehabilitation after the ICU and good physical function, and then obviously good management of muscle mass and as much as possible uh, physical therapy during the ICU is going to be critical. Mm-hmm. Really, sort of helping to to well set set the stage for what's happening, um, you know, in that recovery period in the weeks and months to follow with nutrition and exercise. Yeah. It's, you know, it's really, as someone who is very interested in nutrition to begin with, it's really fascinating to see how our understanding of, of what's happening with protein nutrition has evolved. You know, in the last decade alone, there's been considerable advances, and it's really encouraging as well to, to hear from some of the work that, that you're doing and others that older individuals can 
you know, increased protein synthesis, provided in part that they're receiving you know, sufficient dosing of, of quality protein, and as you mentioned as well, considering that exercise or activity component. So before we sign off, I'd just like to take a minute to ask you one last question so our listeners can get you to know get to know you a little more. Since we've been talking about nutrition in this podcast, can you tell us how you first became interested in the field of nutrition? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good question. Um I was I was late arriving to my uh, sort of epiphany moment, and it literally it, I mean, I don't know that it was a single moment, but it was it was definitely a, a course in the last semester of my my fourth year, which and I did an undergraduate degree in in biochemistry during the age of um, I'll call it gene therapy one point um, where you know we were going to uh, deliver genes to patients and we were going to cure all kinds of diseases and I got into biochemistry with that on my mind, thinking that this was going to be the future. And then uh, in, in the last semester of my my fourth year, I took a course in nutrition with uh, with Dr. Stephanie Atkinson. And perhaps a few of your listeners know uh, Stephanie. And um, I, I'd be honest, I go right on the record as saying is that she opened my eyes. I was absolutely um, blown away by the things I learned and, and, and it kind of, my, my life kind of turned on a dime at that, at that moment. I decided that that was something I really liked and really enjoyed and, um, uh, pursued a master's with, with Stephanie and then went on from there. So, uh, yeah, one, one single course in, the, in a fourth year that was filling sort of an elective slot was, was really the turnaround for me. It's interesting, isn't it, how your, your life can take such a different, uh, direction and just by, you know, taking an elective course. So uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, I hadn't heard that background before, Dr. Phillips. So on that note, we'll conclude the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for joining us and thank all of our listeners. This concludes our episode of the Clinical Nutrition Notes podcast. To listen to more podcasts or to subscribe to Clinical Nutrition Notes, visit our website at nestlehealthscience.ca. For the Nestle Health Science Podcast team, I'm Bethany Hopkins.